Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels once again. This is Gospels part 128. Last week, well, the previous weeks, we have been in this journey through the Gospel of John where Jesus is ushering this farewell, so to speak, to his disciples before all of the climactic events that take place concerning his arrest and trial and death uh, and resurrection. Last week, we saw where he moved from this talk about the the goodness of him going away so that the helper, the spirit, could come, and then he moves into this imagery of, you're going to see me for a little while, and then you're not going to see me, but then you're going to see me after that, <laughs> right. later, and um, disciples are trying to make sense of that, they're a little confused, and... Jesus kind of lays the reality, the harshness of the reality down for them with the imagery of a woman giving childbirth, giving birth to a child and saying that there's going to be agony, there's going to be pain concerning all of these things that are going to happen. It's going to hurt uh, seeing what I'm about to go through. But in the same way that a mother forgets all of that pain and trauma once that baby comes and she gets to meet it, hold it, nurture it care for it the disciples followers really are going to experience that kind of elation and joy when they realize that jesus will have conquered sin and death through his resurrection that god gifts uh, him through his meritorious life so that was a really cool picture to to see jesus give some hope to his disciples no doubt and um we we last week with Jesus say, saying that like there's going to come a time where no longer there're going to be figures of speech but there's going to be this plain form of communication between you know God the Father and humanity through you know the agency of Messiah and the disciples they sound like they're making sense of as like ah you're you're speaking plainly now like we understand what you're saying and uh jesus once again he kind of kicks in the realist aspect of himself by saying like guys remember you all are about to all scatter and it's not it's not going to be as smooth as you all are kind of operating and holding yourselves at the moment so don't forget that and we ended with jesus beginning this priestly prayer that has lots of connections to the priestly prayers that we see in the Torah. Yeah, and and actually we even brought up the fact that, you know, some people view it as a priestly prayer, high priest type prayer, and others don't. They just think it's a, well, this is common. You prayed at the end of a farewell address or whatever. And we don't have to pick a side. It's, uh, we're just looking at the text and trying to see what it's telling us either way. So, We don't have to argue about stuff like that, but let's go ahead. We're in John chapter 17, and uh, let's go ahead and continue with his prayer. We're going to look at verses four through six. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Well, all in all, I mean, that seems pretty positive, right? (laughs) Got that going for us. But it's interesting. It's Jesus speaks as if his work is done. I mean, he says, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, we would look in hindsight, and to us, it would seem obvious that the G- that Jesus's work, what what he, the the work that the Father gave him to do, well, it ought to include his upcoming suffering, death, resurrection, all of that. And so, at this moment, I mean, you could look at this. One way you could look at it is to say, well, Jesus, he's just confident. He is going to finish the work. So he's speaking of it as if it's just done. Okay? That seems reasonable. We definitely see that kind of talk all through our New Testament scriptures, people speaking of things as if they're done, even though they're not yet. And then I guess, to be fair, we could also look at it another way and say, well, no, at this point he's only referring to Everything that he has actually accomplished, his life, his teaching, everything up to this point. Uh, but then we would need to, you know, look at the next part. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And okay, that's not a bad fit because obviously, once he's finally resurrected and ascends, we imagine he is seated at the right hand. He, he, presumably does have the glory that he had before. It just kind of depends, you know, which which way you want to read that. Both could be a little bit awkward, but both actually make some sense. And in the end, what's important is everything in hindsight that we see that Jesus has done, whether it includes death, resurrection, ascension, all that stuff, or not, everything, we, we get it. He he did what God told him to do. God spoke and he listened. And we know that he has returned to that place. He has the glory that he had before the world existed, all of those things. So we know that much. How you you know parse this out is up to you. That's all good. But Jesus, I have to kind of address this, Samuel. He's talking about something that's very amazing. And it's that sentence or part of it, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Well, this goes back to whose gospel we're reading, Samuel? John. And what does John open up with? So famous, everybody knows it. Oh, in the beginning was the Word. Yeah, and the Word became flesh. And so it's tying right back to that. John's story is very self-consistent. It's kind of neat. And uh, and actually, this sort of makes its appearance in other spots throughout John's gospel. This idea that Jesus is came down from the Father and is now returning to him. What was the big chapter in John where that was a big issue, Samuel? Do you remember? How's it John 6, where yeah. it's about the bread of life, eating of the flesh, and we think that the issue is with Jesus saying, ah, if you don't 
eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, but the people were more upset with him saying that he came down. Right. Yeah, it was very, very interesting going through that part. But we, we see that his, his disciples, his apostles, they, they're kind of on board with it. We can now do the same. How do I say that? In a sense, let's say it this way. In a sense, we are all sort of from him. And, and people look at this very different ways, and we don't have to get into all of that. But in some way, all of them lead back to, you know, God is really the source of all things. So in that sense, we are, uh, I don't know, apart from him, separated from him, veiled from him, whatever, and we must return to him. So in that sense, we can all do the same that, that Jesus is doing. Jesus, however, he's returning to take his place at God's side. And he will be ruling with him, and he's going to be the high priest in the heavenly tabernacle. Now, what's funny is a whole bunch of this is humanity's mission. We are supposed to be ruling with God. We are supposed to be at his side, that kind of stuff. And we've talked about this before. Jesus, in some sense, he represented all Israel through his own life. But he also represents all humanity. And, and so, in a sense, humanity has come to a place of fulfilling its role. We started out that way, it got messed up in the garden, now Jesus has sort of brought us full circle. In the end, end like the end of the whole big story, humanity will fill that role in the kingdom there will be some differences or, or limitations or something there, but then also in the world to come. So that's kind of neat that Jesus, he's, he's accomplishing all of this, and he's sort of, you know, talking about it now. But that's, that's just cool. Glorify me with the glory I had before. It's awesome. Something else he says. This is so good, Samuel, because it, it's good for us. I have manifested your name. Now, it's funny, but there are a lot of people, they get hooked on this, and they're like, well you know, it's a secret name or there's some sort of secret pronunciation or there's, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's a kind of literal approach that I think is just really, it's off the mark in this case. It's missing the point. When we say God's name, I have manifested your name, he's talking about his, his character, his nature, his reputation, even his authority, just stuff like that. That is his name. And Jesus has revealed it in his person, in his life, his thoughts, his words, his actions, all of it. He's made it clear. He's uncovered it. And he did it, you know, from, from our perspective, we can look back and we've got his teaching and his life example, which is awesome. And it's going to be very relevant as we continue in the prayer. So hold on to that. And then he also mentions something about the people that you gave me out of this world. And on one hand, I mean, okay, just simple, simple question, Samuel. If you were going to say, who are the people that, that belonged to God before Jesus showed up? Uh, Israel. Yeah, that would be the, the, the ordinary answer. It's not crazy to think that right at this moment, Jesus is talking about Israel. However... It kind of loses its punch when you get down to the last line where it says, they have kept your word. That's kind of a problem, right? The faithfulness wasn't really there. And so then you start to assume, well, then it must be a small portion of Israel. 
Because, I mean, that's the only, that's all that's involved at this point. So those that are God's are those who actually listen to his instruction. And that is to say, they hear and obey. You are not his by blood or by birth. Being Israel, being Jewish, it's important. There's a lot in it. But to actually be his requires hearing and obeying, faith and faithfulness. That's how the Gentiles are included. So, again, it all remains true today. Not all of Israel and not all of the church, if we're going to make that kind of distinction, are his. It's only those who are faithful and loyal, obedient to his instructions, walking out the underlying meaning of his Torah, the justice, the mercy, the humility, etc. And that is another way to say it is just being truly human, imaging him. Now, having said all of that in context, it's probably most appropriate to see the scope of the people whom you gave to me as simply the disciples. And in this case, I would say it was the 11 that remain. And and I think it's going to make even more sense as we continue. But anyway, that's that bit. Got anything, Samuel? Um, the only thing you had made a statement and hopefully just clarifying, you had said that this, this glory that Jesus was exhibiting before the world existed. And you had said that there's this reality of Jesus's story where he came down from the father and is returning back to him and then you followed that by saying like we can now do the same like we can return to him like fully 100 percent in in line i'm on board with that but i just want to reiterate that that picture of us like going away to god in a future state is not the end story it's oh right it's god coming back down to or and restoring earth it's going to be a merging once again of the heavenlies and the earth together so i just wanted to remind us of that that you know the what what is the the rapture isn't what <laughs> right we normally think of when people talk about that that god is coming back to a earth and restoring it and bringing heaven with him yeah from the very beginning of the story and all the way to the very very end of the story the real goal apparently in god's mind if we could say it that way is god dwelling with man in creation so yeah good point yeah you were just bringing it up in like kind of like a metaphorical sense like yeah in the same way that jesus was returning into relationship and closeness with the father we have that same opportunity to experience that access to the Father as well. Yeah, because of Jesus' work. He has opened the way that was closed in the garden, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, awesome. All right, uh, let's see what else we got. Still in chapter 17 of John, we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed 
that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Okay. And most of that seems fairly clear on its face. It gets a little little weird toward the end, you know, but let's make a couple of points here. First, uh, up to this point in chapter 17, uh, Jesus has been praying, you know, regarding himself. And then, and actually it kind of begins in verse 6, which we handled a moment ago. Now we begin sort of the disciples' scope. And, and again, it's probably only the 11 at this point. So Jesus declares that they know that everything the Father has given him really is from the Father. They see it. They get it. Now, side note, Samuel, having gone through all of this, (laughs) do you have that little inner thought that says, could have fooled us, right? (laughs) But at this moment, you know, Jesus is being positive, He, yeah, right? He, They see it, they get it. He's giving them credit. And so I think we, you know, should go with it. It's going to become much more apparent as the story unfolds, maybe through the book of Acts or whatever, but here we go. But what's interesting is that the everything that's being referred to here, and I don't know, maybe I'm being too nitpicky, but it, it seems that the everything is only talking about his words and his teaching. Jesus gave the disciples the Father's words, and they, the disciples, received them, period. And so, therefore, they know. In truth, they know that Jesus came down from heaven, from God. And, as we remembered back from John 6, this is a really big deal. But these guys get it. They believe that God sent Jesus as Messiah. And so, you know, they're demonstrating faith. We talked about the faithfulness a little bit earlier. Now they're, this is the faith part. And, you know, I think it's okay for us reading the story from the outside, you know, that this is still a little hard for us to believe about them. But, you know, Jesus' prayer, Jesus' words, he, he, he thinks they've got it. And so I think we need to give them credit. When we only get a snapshot of the disciples with Jesus, Jesus was with them day in and day out. So he gets the full picture of where their heads and their lives are at concerning, you know, their faith and faithfulness to the mission of Jesus's ministry. Yeah. How fair is that? Samuel is a fair guy, isn't he? (laughs) I try to be. (laughs) So, so Jesus, and this is, I find this super interesting too. Jesus takes a moment in the prayer to clarify who he is praying for. Very specifically, he says he is not praying for the world. I don't know. Some people might look at that and go, well, that's kind of (laughs) mean, but He's not. He's only praying for those God has given him. Now, I think us today, looking back, reading in hindsight, yeah, you know what? 
we can look back, and, and I think we can rightly see how this statement might be extended to, you know, all believers across time, including us, but still, in context, right here, he is speaking of the 11. They are gods, and God gave them to Jesus. And I think, to be fair, we should include Judas. It's the 12, just Judas isn't present right now. God gave Judas to Jesus, but he did it for kind of a different purpose. Now, Jesus throws in a little more talk about this whole unity thing. They are mine, and mine are yours, and they are yours, and yours are mine. Just as God is glorified through Jesus's life and death and resurrection, etc., Jesus is glorified and will be glorified in their lives, the 11. Now, again, I think it's very reasonable for us to extend this out to us and our lives. In fact, it isn't just reasonable. I think it's important that we do see that, understand that as part of our role. But in context, he's speaking to the 11. Now, about us again, we can glorify God. We do it through our thoughts, our words, our actions, and just to make a note of it, he's given us lots of instructions on how to properly do that, and they are in his scriptures. Can we do it through the Holy Spirit alone? By all means. But does the scripture actually play an important and pivotal role, like an aid for us, for the Spirit. So we have kind of that solid anchor to grab hold of, point to, etc. I think the answer is absolutely yes. So we have the instructions. We can glorify God as well in the same way that Jesus did. Maybe we won't be as good at it. I'll give you that. But we can do it in the same manner. Gotcha. Um, I'm trying to make sense of the imagery of the setting of these words right now. Because we we argue that this is maybe some form of a priestly prayer, and when I'm thinking back to the Torah, you know, in the Levitical system, when a priestly prayer was offered, like it it was in the presence of other people, like who are to receive the blessing. Right. So, in, in some ways, this prayer seems kind of private in terms of like. Jesus, it seems like he's talking to God directly, but at the same time, like his, I mean, the whole reason we have these words of Jesus's prayers has to be because someone heard it. So I like, right. So he's, it's, I know this sounds so nitpicky. So he's praying for his disciples while he's in front of them. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and do you remember this? That's a really great question. Do you remember when Jesus was going to raise Lazarus? Mm-hmm. And remember, he said he was praying so that the people around could hear. He did that on purpose. I think this is very similar in that he's saying these things out loud because they are going to also have some sort of effect, as in like teaching or something. And of course, we know one of his big purposes right here at the very end is he's trying to give them stuff to hold on to 
because he knows there's trouble ahead. Their faith is going to really be shaken. But yeah, I think he's doing that, Samuel, and I, I, I think he's doing it on purpose. Well, and now it's that funny. we're hashing it out, like that's actually a good, really good practice, it seems like, within discipleship relationships that you have with other people in your lives in terms of praying with them and allowing the person that you're walking with in discipleship to hear your prayers just because like just in my life when I have heard other people praying specifically for me in earnestness that has been so powerful and so encouraging and it it, I don't know it urges me to mimic that for other people that I'm in relationship with so I don't know. I just yeah. think it's a it's a practice that we can pull out of the text here and try to, you know, put it into practice within our own lives and who we're who we are in relationship with. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. Totally agree. And I do want to offer a little little sort of side note slash warning kind of thing. Obviously, this could be used as manipulation. Oh, for sure. I've got a lot of church experience, and I'll use just like the worst extreme examples when somebody, let's just say a pastor of a church is standing up there and he's praying about money and finances and stuff like that. Could it be that it is a really good, powerful prayer and it, it's it's beneficial to the hearer? And all? Sure. Could it be that the prayer is just a, 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 an all-out manipulation tactic trying to get more money in the plate? Yeah. So, again, I totally agree with you, and just because we're all humans, let's, you know, take note that there's opportunity for trouble there. Gotcha. But I want to be a part of it. I want to hear it. I want other people to hear mine, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, Same. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep going. Still in chapter 17. Now we're going to look at verses 11 through 16. This is, this is kind of funny. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Okay. Kind of wordy. Kind of, some of it clear, some of it maybe not so much. But it starts with, I don't know, maybe it's just me, Samuel, but I find this odd. Jesus says he is no longer in the world. <laughs> well, <laughs> Alicum Lamb. Yeah. 
if if you interpret your Bible too literally, well, <laughs> that sentence is going to bring you some real trouble. Obviously, he at this moment was still in the world, like like as a physical human presence, whatever. In fact, he was so in the world, the world was about to crush and kill him. That this is the story that's coming, right? So obviously, he's pointing to a couple of things. One, he's not really of the world because he is separate. I mean, he totally obeys God, all that kind of thing. And maybe he's simply meaning that his time here has, in fact, come to a close. We are at the end. Either way, I think it's reasonable. Everybody knows what he means. He's no longer in the world. He, he's, his time here is done. Jesus is soon going to be going to the Father, but they are all going to remain. They're going to continue to face all sorts of things, face uh, hatred, persecution, actual martyrdom, you know, that kind of stuff. But Jesus, he starts using a new phrase. He's asking God to keep them in your name, in God's name. And Jesus adds that he kept them while he was here with them on earth. But now he's asking God to do it, you know, because he's leaving. He's, quote unquote, no longer in the world. And Jesus says this name they are kept in, God's name, was actually given to Jesus by God. Which, okay, that's a little bit odd. What, what is actually going on there? So I looked around, I found this little interesting bit from back in Exodus. Now this is back when, you know, one of the times Israel was supposed to be going into the promised land, there was an angel that was going to lead them, lead Israel into the promised land. I think it kind of relates. Samuel, I'd like you to read it. It's from Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 and 21. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Yeah. So here's this angel that has God's name in him. That's a weird picture. And then look at the things that this angel does. The angel goes before to guard and to bring you, let's just say, to God, a place that God prepared. And God says, pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Don't rebel against him. All of these things. I mean, if you're looking at that, there's a whole bunch of that that sounds very Jesus-like. Now, I want to be clear. I, I know some people do this. I am in no way suggesting that this angel that we're reading about was an early appearance of Jesus. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in the same way that this angel had God's name in him, Jesus somehow had that. Uh, To have the name is to carry God's uh, essence, authority, reputation, character, all those things. You have it with you, in you. And, 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 And 
let's think about like a, a super practical modern day example, and you could make up any situation you want, but let's say I can't go somewhere and I send Bob in my place. You know, Paul can't make it. Bob's here instead. I'm here on Paul's behalf, and, and I have been given authority in all things, at least all things Paul-related. I am, for all practical purposes, Paul to you. You mean Bob? Well, this guy named Bob is going and representing me in my story. I know I wrote it different in the notes. Okay. I'm just, I've, I've confused us both. <laughs> the point is that someone goes to represent me, and they are, for the people, even though I am not actually there, it's like I am. He is me when he goes and represents him. And so an angel can have God's name, just like this person could go in my name. An angel could have it. Jesus had it. The disciples, interestingly, from this text, it appears that they in some way have it. And in some way, in some measure, we can have it. And in simple terms, what we're talking about here, and this is where it fits with the text, it goes on and on and on about unity, unity with it, with him. And it, remember, it's like, I am in the Father, the Father's in me, I am in you, you are in me, that, right? All, all of that unity stuff. So Jesus goes on to speak of how he has kept them, and again, it's in God's name, he's kept them, guarded them, and some of that authority, some of that power comes with the name. Uh, and Jesus notes that he hasn't lost a single disciple except for Judas, and that he mentions it's necessary so the scripture could be fulfilled. But Jesus knows he's about to leave them, and so Jesus asks that the protection would continue in his absence. He's asking, God, I've been here, I'm in your name, I'm able to do all this stuff, but I'm going away. So God, would you please continue the protection in my absence? Now, God's name, you know, like the in Judaism, they would never pronounce Yahweh, you know, whatever, all this kind of stuff. God's name may have been off limits, but interestingly, Jesus's name wasn't, and it carried the same authority because he was given God's name. So that's a very interesting little twist that, you know, this this is the name that they can actually speak and use. Uh, kind of interesting. Now, everything that he has said, Jesus, everything he said, taught, whatever, everything from before, and even including probably this stuff that he's praying out loud, as you've pointed out, Samuel, this was so that they might have the same joy that Jesus had. And what did that joy look like? It was the joy of unity with God. And how was it that Jesus attained that unity? Well, it was through obedience. And Jesus gave them, his disciples, and obviously us because they've passed it on, he gave them his words, and that is to say his teaching and even his example, which will bring their joy to fulfillment. It's important to hear that. If you want to know true joy, it is in obeying Jesus' words, and Jesus' words are God's words. It's all the same. 
However, if you actually pursue this, accomplish this, whatever, whatever you want to call it, or are pursuing it, we'll say it that way, it's also going to make you hated by the world. The world hated Jesus, and it's going to hate the 11. And if we are, quote-unquote, doing our job right, being a Christian right, imaging him, etc., guess what? The world's going to hate us too. They are hated because they are not of the world. In a sense, we could say that they are of heaven inasmuch as they are in unity with God. And it's not just they, it is also us. Now, just to finish up, one more interesting point. Uh, It's similar to some of the things we've noted before. Jesus does not ask for God to take them out of the world, take them away from trouble. Instead, he asks God to keep them from the evil one. Now, they could expect trouble from the world. And when I say they, I mean we. (laughs) But their unity with the Father would sustain them through it. Also true for us. It's like living in an entirely different plane of existence on one hand, while remaining 100% in this plane of existence. If, if you can imagine such a thing. And I, I just got to say it, and I'm not talking about in that goofy kind of way, right? You, the, the, the way that you seem outside of the world, outside the box, outside of what's normal, is that you look like God, not that you just look like some weirdo. Just because the world hates you or doesn't accept you, well, if you're being goofy and weird... That doesn't count. You need to be imaging him. So get your head on straight. Pay attention to what's really being taught you. Really pursue God's character, God's good goodness, and, and in the midst of those things, if the world starts to hate you, well, then I think ultimately that ends up being good news. So I don't know. Said a lot in there, Samuel. What, what do you got? Yeah, I got a couple things. Um this the first is this concept of Jesus saying keeping them in your name and you bringing up that he Jesus is leaving and that even, like even though God's name has been off limits you said that Jesus's wasn't and it carried the same authority as God's name and I, I hope I'm not trying to be nitpicky I just want to hopefully continue to squash misconceptions and I don't want to speak for you Paul but I I think I know you and us and our platform enough to say that you weren't saying that we should now be praying to Jesus directly instead of God Um, definitely not because if we're mimicking our rabbi and our rabbi's Jesus anytime we see him pray in the in the gospel text He's always praying to the Father. And we, I think we even talked about it in a previous episode that, because I had, I had said something about like, you know, Jesus wasn't trying to showcase this like almost Catholicism level of hierarchy where 
you're supposed to bring your prayers to God or you're supposed to bring your prayers to Jesus and then he takes them to God and lays them at his feet and God decides to do what he wants with them. It's that through Jesus's life, his merit, his character, like what you said previously today, like he has paved the way for us back to God in a direct access. So it's this name that he's talking about is that the character of Messiah is the character of God. And that right. if that is a focal point for you in your life, then that access is present and carries the same authority. So did, did I summarize that correctly and bring yeah. clarity? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's like one of the things is we w- presumably at some point we'll go move into the book of Acts. And if we do that, you will see a couple of stories where you'll see the apostles say things like, uh, what is it, something like, money I haven't got or something like that, but in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. You see in that, in the name. And and of course, to be real, they weren't saying the word Jesus. They were saying Yeshua, for, for whatever mm-hmm. that's worth. But the point is, and that's where it gets back to, it's not so much the name or the pronunciation or that aspect of it it's it's in the name it's the the character the the reputation the the authority that all of those things that come with it being in the name so yeah uh, it isn't it isn't yeah we should turn around and now start praying to him but more like in a way that we couldn't leverage god's name before maybe through what Jesus has accomplished and our relationship with him, etc., we can, in fact, leverage his name, mm. right? So, yeah. 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 Cool. Anything else? Yeah, the um, the second thing is that, and you touched on it, I just want to reiterate this thing that Jesus said of the, the, the reality is Jesus is asking God for the disciples to not be taken out of the world, but to stay in the reality that they are and be separate from the things that, you know, are the antithesis to God. Uh, But then in that subsequent verse, in verse 16, where it says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, I just wanted to bring up that I think that that gets uh, misinterpreted so much within the Western church because I've, I've heard statements before like, you know, we're not physical beings with spiritual overtones we're you know we're spiritual beings with you know physical undertones or whatever and there's this aspect that seems to be present hopefully i'm not making gross assumptions where it's like people are trying to rid themselves of the physical or fleshly aspect of their life so that they can take on their new like ethereal floaty new reality in the heavens Right, Jesus's life in the upcoming future that we're going to see after his conquering of sin and death is a physical resurrected body restored yeah. free from the curse of sin and death. And when Jesus is saying they are not of the world, we like what you've said previously in today's episode, we shouldn't take it too hyper literally. He's meaning we should not be the things that are contrary to God's character, God's essence right. in the world. We are to be a light, you know, set on 
a hill, a city on a hill, so that people can see that there is a different way for operating than what people are accustomed to, blind to, whatever. So I just wanted to bring that up, that our reality is going, like the body that we experience and live in now, there's going to be some similarities, I think, in the world to come. It's just going to be different because we're not going to have this burden of sin and death plaguing us uh, to be able to live out our full human capacity. Yeah, and just to go back to the text, there's actually a little something interesting in there. If you look at verse 11, it says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And at the end, he says, they are not of the world, Mm -hmm. just as I am not of the world. And so that speaks to exactly what you're talking about. If you look at the world and all of it, how it is basically in rebellion against God in some way, however you want to say that, they are not of that, but they're still in Mm -hmm. it, you know. So there's that. Gotta love those prepositions. Yeah, 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 and how reliable are they? We're not sure, but that's the way the English reads right now, so it, it, it aided in our conversation, yeah. Anything else? Nope, let's keep going. All right. Uh, John 17, we'll look at verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. All right. That's not so clear. So Jesus prays that God would set them apart. That's what we're talking about when he says sanctify them. And he says... He's asking God, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth, which is another way, he says, of saying in God's word, in God's instruction. That's how we set them apart. They were to be different from the world. So that's continuing on your point a moment ago. They were to be like God, and that is to say, imaging him. Obviously, none of us are God. We get that. But it's to be like him in whatever human capacity we can. Jesus did it when God sent him into the world. He did it successfully. And Jesus is now sending them, specifically, we're still talking about the the apostles right here, but it applies to us. I think it's reasonable to extend that out. Jesus is now sending them in the same way. And they are going to need an intimate relationship with God, just like Jesus had. Now, okay, are we going to be exactly like Jesus? No, I get it. But that's the goal. That's, the, that's what we aim for. Now, they did something else in this particular translation. They used the word sanctify and they used the word consecrate, as if they were somehow different things. But just so you know, underneath, in this case, the Greek text, it's the exact same word. And, and it, it's just saying the same thing. So I just wanted to point that out. Sanctify, consecrate, right here, it's the same word in the Greek. Jesus consecrates himself or sanctifies himself by finishing his work, the work of heaven, instead of the works of this world. 
He's going to complete his work of redemption. And so this this sanctifies them, or you could say consecrates them, in a couple of ways. At least you could say this. First, it completes Jesus's instruction and example for them. As not only as they've lived with him these few years, seeing all about his life and all that kind of stuff, everything that's about to come, about to come to pass, this is also instruction and example. And so he's completing their consecration by by continuing this education. They have a clear image of what it means to be faithful and loyal to God, to truly sacrifice this life for true life in him. We get the same example, lucky us. Now, another way to look at it, a second way, what Jesus accomplished on the cross makes it possible for us to be, and then, you know, these words get overused, so you could say atoned for or purified or forgiven, all of those kinds of things, but completely and permanently, not the way that it was in the Levitical system. That was only about purity in the community, in God's physical presence that was there in the tabernacle, etc., etc. This is talking about completely and permanently. So, I don't know. Very interesting little section of text, but that's my take on it. Yeah, um, kind of adding to that, the completely and permanently, I see that as like a looking ahead to the this atoning for, the purification, the forgiveness, that it's, it's on an eternal sense in terms of our future reality dwelling with God in a new creation where our new resurrected bodies you know like i've said said in the previous section are have had the curse of sin and death cast cast it away from us um and we're we've got the law we've got the instruction like you said woven into our fabric and framework um so it's i just bring that up because i know that you know some people might hear those words completely and permanently to talk about the aspect of God's forgiveness it's like yeah like God's forgiven you past present and future sins you'll ever commit and I'm not saying that that's not true but I don't want it to get into that weirdness of like Paul the apostle says in Romans like you know do we use grace as an excuse for sin like by no means um I know yeah so yeah good point good you you made you were talking you made a whole bunch of thoughts run through my head and in, in fact there were so many and they came at me so fast now i can't even remember them <laughs> went from super processor to AOL dial up that's right <laughs> i've got to try to find that little dial up connection sound yeah. that they're on there yeah all right well let's uh yeah anything else sorry didn't uh, want to cut you off well, I, this is just a little an aside that this phrase that Jesus says, like, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Um, I just see that as a continuation of the theme that runs across all of Scripture concerning, like, the people of God. Like, uh, Marty Solomon has this teaching called, um, in his 
Bema podcast called Crossroads of the Earth, where mm. he is showcasing that, you know, God took the original patriarch Abraham and then his later descendants out of, you know, the pagan nations that they were accustomed to and placed them in a land, and that is the the promised land, Israel, uh, that is like the it the crossroads of the earth, so to speak, in the Middle East, where you had all of these other surrounding hubs of people groups that were surrounding Israel, and God was giving them this opportunity to be a example to those nations. So, like you know, again, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot today, but just to to showcase to those nations that there was was a different way to live and to operate than the pagan idolatrous manner in which they were used to. And so in the same way, like God here in the new Testament and then later when like in acts, like that theme is present, but it's not, you know, in Israel and then everything surrounding God is like taking it out. He's like, it started at the crossroads of the earth and now it's going out to the ends of the earth. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up because it popped in my head. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, Samuel, serious question. Can we actually fit another section in, or do we just need to cut it off right here? Could go either way. We're I know we're used to going long, uh, but yeah. it, uh, I, I, maybe we'd be nice. I defer to you as as the teacher. <laughs> well, I think what we're going to do, you know what, let's go ahead and call this the end, and I'm going to use this opportunity just to, in this little section, remember the first thing that you brought up, you were talking about the completely and permanently atoned for, purified, forgiven, all that kind of thing. One of the things that I was thinking while you were talking is that in Hebrews, and I think Paul also mentions it in a couple places, They have a very interesting phrase. They refer to it as cleansing the conscience or purifying the conscience. And the way that we think of our conscience, use the word conscience, whatever, is a little bit odd compared to the way it's being used there or however it's getting translated or whatever. And so I just, I think that is a very interesting picture that... It's something that is happening, I believe, in us. People would call that sanctification, right? Something that's happening in us now. We, the, the Torah is being written on our minds and hearts, but it's something that will be complete and full, whatever you want to call it, uh, after resurrection. Mm. But it's that idea of cleansing the conscience or purifying the conscience and rather than spend a lot of time talking on it, because we just made the point that we're at the end of this particular hour. But I think that's something that, as a a listener, that's something you might actually spend some time, you know, think about that a little bit, maybe look for it in in, uh, Scripture, uh, how it talks about it, and how that might give you some sort of insight into what it is we have to look forward to, what's being done in us and what will be done Mm -hmm. in us, that kind of thing. So anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. But other than that, I'm done. So unless you got something, let's just be done. Okie dokie. Oh! Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.